Hey guys, on this episode, I chat with my friend Frank King, the mental health comedian. So if you want to learn how to deal with suicidal thoughts and also how to land yourself a TEDx talk, you're definitely not going to want to miss this episode. And make sure you stick around to the end of the show because I have a special free gift for you. When we recover, we are returning to a normal state of health, mind, or strength. We begin the process of regaining control over something that was lost. Welcome to the Road Beyond Recovery podcast, and my name is Tamar, your host. Have you ever felt like you were meant for more? Well, I help people discover their purpose so they can follow their passion and realize what they are truly capable of. My mission is to empower people in recovery to embrace their authentic selves, live up to their true potential, and answer the question, what lies beyond recovery for you? Thank you guys for joining me on another episode of the Road Beyond Recovery podcast, where my mission is to help you rise in recovery and really enhance that recovery so you can start to create the life that you were meant to live. So before we get into today's episode, just wanna let you know about a referral program that I have going on. If you refer five friends to the show and spread the hope, you will get a free discovery call with me. And if you refer 10 friends, then you're gonna get a free paperback print copy of my book, Beyond Recovery. So just head on over to refer.fm slash recovery and you can refer five or ten friends and pick up your freebies. I am really excited about today's show because it has a couple different topics that are completely different um, but similar in a way because I think that you know just like myself where I had really found the secret to my success in what I had been through, right? My life experience. Frank King is exactly the same. He is the mental health comedian and has struggled with suicidal thoughts for most of his life. It runs in his family, so we talk about that. And today he has actually used that as the key to his success. And he brings mental health awareness to everyone by doing his TED Talks and just spreading the message that you're not alone. You know, I think it is so important with mental health and so many people are struggling with right with it right now that we start bringing more awareness to it, right? I think that the more we share our stories, the more we're vulnerable about what it is we're going through, what we struggle with, the more we bring awareness to it and the more people may reach out and actually realize they're not alone, that they're not the only ones feeling this way. I know that in my addiction, I had, you know, tried to commit suicide a few times. I didn't want to live, right? I didn't want to continue to hurt those that I loved. And, you know, a lot of people that don't understand what, you know, depression is and how that feels um, think it's a selfish act. But in fact, those of us that, that, you know, sit in that headspace sometimes and just want to stop hurting those around us, we look at it more as a selfless act and you know doesn't mean it's right or wrong but I think that we can learn a lot from Frank Um, today he talks a lot about uh, what he does to overcome those suicidal thoughts because depression still happens to him today and I think it's much the same as you know when I start to 
have a bad day or a bad week. I have tools in my life now that I use consistently. And I think that's the big difference between where I was before and where I am today is that no matter how hard life gets, and trust me guys, it is difficult. Even though I'm living a life today that I never would have imagined I'd be living, there are very dark days. But the difference is today, I know that there's a light at the end of that darkness, right? I know that when I'm struggling, when I'm stuck in my head, when I, I wonder what this is all for, there's always that glimmer of hope and I know I'm going to come out of it. And sure enough, when I use the tools that I've been taught, I come out of it and I realize that, you know, just having that knowledge that this is not going to be forever has really helped me in my own recovery. So I'm really excited today. At the end of the show, Frank is also going to tell you or give you some secrets on how to book a TEDx talk. You know, he is a five-time TEDx speaker and he coaches people on how to book and write their TEDx talk. And so you're not going to want to miss this. So not only are you getting a big dose of mental health and what to do, but you're also going to get some tips and strategies on how you can become a TEDx speaker. So if this is something that has always interested you, make sure you listen to the end and you're going to want to take lots of notes. Welcome back, everybody. I'm hanging out with my friend Frank King, the mental health comedian today. How are you, Frank? Uh, hi, I'm Frank. I'm an alcoholic. Oh, I'm sorry. Wrong meeting. <laughs> I I am actually not an alcoholic, although it does run in my family. It's uh, along with mental illness. Uh, I've often said there are more nuts in my family than in a squirrel turd. And uh, yeah, one cousin, by the way, one cousin, not crazy and doesn't have the family high cholesterol. And we hate him with a passion. He's the only one that dodged both those bullets. Yeah. I think you got to be a little crazy to fit in these days. It's good. Crazy's good sometimes. Oh, no. Uh, my first wife said to me, can't we know any normal people? And I'm like, normal. That's boring. <laughs> it is boring. Yeah. Well, speaking of wives, so let's go back to the year 1984. Let's where you were, time. You back were married, time. miserable, yeah. and selling yep. insurance. What, and miserable. What brought you to that point? What happened there? Well, it was, she was my high school sweetheart, college sweetheart even though I went to different colleges way apart, opposite sides of the country, maintain a long distance relationship. And after you've dated that long, you know, and graduate from college, it's either, you know, quit or get married. And that's basically how I got engaged. She said, look, we're too old to keep dating. We were all of 22. I'm not going to live with you, which would have been my choice, at least with an option to buy or marry me and I'm out of here. You know, and I okay, that's how I got engaged by ultimatum. And I knew going down the aisle, it was a mistake, but I thought I'll give it a try. I learned you don't try marriage. You try grape nuts for a couple of weeks. The, and then she wanted me to be in the insurance business. Her whole family's in the insurance. So I went to work for her father's company and insurance is a great business. She's a wonderful woman, but we had no business being together. The joke I wrote was, we had nothing in common, but you know, opposites attract. She was pregnant. I wasn't, um, which is not true. We never had to get thank the Lord. But I came to the point where I realized I was married and miserable, insurance and miserable. I was not going to open mic night, which is where I thought I belonged because my wife was four square against that. And I realized that I was depressed and suicidal. And if I didn't change something soon, I was going to kill myself. My second thought was, wait a minute. 
I could divorce my wife, quit my job, try comedy. If it works, great. If it doesn't, I can always kill myself. And like most mentally ill people, I thought I was the only one who ever had that, you know, basic thought pattern. And I've met a half a dozen people since then, comedians, entrepreneurs, entertainers who had the same basic, I'm living, I'm living the wrong life with the wrong people doing the wrong thing. I should be over there. I'm going to kill myself. Well, what the heck? You know, I'll give it a try. And everybody I've met who gave it a try, things worked out and they're, you know, in their new life, they're, they're relatively happy. Still, you know, still depression, suicidal. It's the way I'm wired. My family, my grandmother died by suicide, my great aunt, my mother, it's called generational depression and suicide. So it's not a matter of cure or pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. It's I'm hardwired for it. The good news is I think my depression and suicidal thoughts are just the flip side of creativity and, you know, um, imagination and my comic ability. Cause I can teach you to write stand up. I can teach you to perform it. I cannot teach you to process the information the way my brain does. I give you an example. I bet this has happened to you. You're in a theater, you're watching a movie, a bunch of people, something happens on the screen. You laugh out loud. And then when you stop laughing, you realize, wait a minute, I'm the only one laughing. <laughs> what is it? That's my life. Every, that's how my brain works all the time. It's always searching out the funny where other people don't make the connection. So, yeah. so that's, and so I, I went to open mic night. I was on stage. My first five minutes, I heard inside my head, you're home. I'm gonna do this for a living. I have no idea how. And a year later, I asked my girlfriend, now my wife of 33 years, um, I'm going on the road to do stand-up professionally. Do you want to just come along for the ride? Figuring she'd go, oh, hell no. Uh, she said, yes. So we gave up our apartment jobs, jumped in the car, and we're on the road for 2,629 nights in a row, nonstop, just club to club to club to club to club for seven years without a home. And worked with a lot of people who are famous now, Dennis Miller and Foxworthy and Ron White, and Ellen DeGeneres, Paula Poundstone, and, you know, and on and on and on. Back when they were just hardworking, you know, as Leno would say, journeyman comics, just, you know, good journeyman comics. That's incredible. So you, I, well, you know, you're, I know your family has a history of suicide, but you say that suicide is a secret to your success and that you had thoughts of suicide because you weren't following your passion of comedy. Yes, I, I realized that's where I belonged. And if I didn't make a change and, you know, I, I didn't have anything to lose. If I stayed put, I was going to kill myself. So, I mean, why not put it all on one roll of the dice? And there are a few things more powerful on earth than a human being with nothing to lose. I mean, I was going to die anyway. So what the hey? So that's, it's always been my, it's still my superpower. It's because I, because I have something called chronic suicidal ideation, meaning for me, suicide's always an option as a solution problems large and small. And when I keynote, I give the example, my car broke down. I had three thoughts unbidden, get it fixed, buy a new one. I could just kill myself. The upside of that is every keynote I've given since 2014, except for one, there's been somebody in the audience who has chronic suicidal ideation. They do not know it has a name. They think they're just some kind of freak. And then I have a young woman come up to me after my keynote. She goes, thanks for your keynote. I said, you're welcome. She goes, it made me weep. How did it make you weep? She goes, you know, your story about the car, Get it fixed, buy a new one, kill yourself. I go, yeah. She goes, I've been having those thoughts all my life. I thought it was just me. I thought I was some kind of freak. I thought I was completely alone. And I heard you say that out loud. I realized for the first time in my life, I'm not alone. And I wept. So the I made the jump from comedy club to corporate comedy, which is after dinner, after lunch on the rubber chicken circuit. Just telling clean jokes at all these meetings. 
And then, but I always wanted to be a speaker who was funny, not just a funny speaker. But I couldn't figure out what I had to teach anybody because to be a, a, a you know, a, a speaker who's funny, you need content, you know, takeaways, action items, learning objectives. And in 2010, when we filed bankruptcy and lost everything, and I learned what the barrel of my gun tasted like, um, spoiler alert, I did not pull the trigger. The I thought, you know what I could do? I could speak on suicide prevention, given my family history. So I got, I took three different classes on suicide prevention. And that's what I talk about. I talk about the signs and symptoms of depression, thoughts of suicide, what to say, what not to say, what to do, what not to do. And that's, that's my speaking career now as suicide prevention as a workplace health and safety issue or college health and safety issue. So that's, that's my purpose. That's my passion. People ask me, how'd you pick suicide and depression as a topic? Well, actually they picked me. So I didn't know, I mean, it's not a club anybody wants to join, but here we are. Well, and you know, it's, I find that with addiction too. I used to think forever that, you know what, I'm going to be nothing because of my history of, you know, 20 plus years of addiction. I thought it's going to follow me around. It's going to screw up my life, but it's actually turned out to be the biggest gift because when I talk to people and they're suffering, it's like, you're not alone. You're not the only one who feels these thoughts that you think are crazy. They're actually quite common. Yeah, very much so. And, 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 you know, and, and people have told me, you know, you, you, you essentially saved my life. And so, I mean, it's, it's a good day's work and it's, I go to bed thinking about it, wake up thinking about it. I don't have to push. I don't, you know I mean? It's not, I mean, it's work, but it's not like, and, and once I decided I was just going to speak on suicide prevention, as they say in the speaking business, I chose a lane suicide prevention speaker, period, you know, become the expert, become the go-to guy. So you're no longer a commodity. They want to, they want a mental health speaker, but they want you. And that's happened a couple of times. Hopefully it'll happen more in the future. But once I did that, the universe, it seemed like things began to fall into place. I met people in the same business and there were opportunities I hadn't seen before. And so it's, yeah, it's, it's, and it's very therapeutic. Somebody asked me, does telling your story trigger you? No, it's the reverse. It's, it's very therapeutic because almost every time I speak, there's two or three or four or five people who are hanging out afterwards, want to chat, share a story, ask a question. And when I did my fourth TEDx talk, I was in the first flight of speakers, the first four speakers, then there's a break. And one of the other speakers said, are you going to leave after you get done? I said, I can't leave. Why can't you leave? I said, well, when we break for cookies and lemonade, watch what happens. So we broke for cookies and lemonade and there are eight people lined up waiting to talk to me. I said, told you, can't, I can't leave. There's, you know, unanswered questions. So. And I love that when you open the door for other people to go, okay, maybe I can share my story. Mm -hmm. I think it's, it's such a gift. I find the same thing with people in recovery and addiction. It's exactly the same thing. Yeah. And, it's, and I, I've been told things people haven't told their family. I, I met a guy at a comedy gig. We're chatting over dinner you know, 10 top, 10 of us. And what do you do? I do comedy, anything else? Yeah, speak on suicide prevention. Really, I'd, I'd choose that. Well, I have chronic suicidal ideation. What's that? I'd describe it. And I'm on my way to the bathroom. I hear somebody behind me. I turn, it's one of my table mates. And he goes, I, I've got it. I said, you got what? He goes, I've got chronic suicidal ideation. I didn't know it had a name. And he said, I, I'm 69 years old and I've never told anybody that, not even my therapist. Because if he told his therapist his thoughts about suicide, he'd be spending three days in a mental health facility on, on a 5051, which is the law in California, 5051 for an involuntary detention order. 
So that's why he had never told his therapist because they're duty bound. If they think, you know, active with suicidal, got to lock them down. So I, I think if we allow people to give voice to their feelings and experiences without that kind of recrimination, might save people because they would be more willing to talk about it. Not to say that there aren't situations where that three days is very valuable, but you know, not everybody who, you know, I mean, somebody said to me, Frank, are you depressed? Yeah. Thoughts of suicide all the time. Do you have a plan? I had half a dozen plans. What do you want to hear? <laughs> but then if they said, are you going to kill yourself? Why would I kill myself? Uh, <laughs> well, you're depressed. Do you have plans? Well, yeah, but then my, I mean, it's just the way my brain works. You know, I mean, I'm, as a matter of fact, right this minute, I started sliding last night and, and I know my cycle is about three days. So I'm, I'm sliding toward rock bottom right now, but I know by Monday this time, you know, the, somebody will turn, turn down the force of gravity. I'll be able to move my feet a little faster and things will be okay. Cause I have a three day cycle, but, uh, yeah, and I've, you know, I've had thoughts of suicide, but it's not really, as I said to the young woman who said she'd been having those thoughts all her life, I said, look, here's the deal. Just because you have the thought doesn't mean you have to do it. I said, I've been having those thoughts for the last 40 years and here I am. So again, you're right to be able to enlighten somebody to the fact that A, it's a thing, B, it's got a name and C, they're not alone, may steer them far enough off the path to suicide, they'll live a normal life. And that's, that, yeah, I, I, I am delighted to have found my, purpose and my passion and it, it's you know it's in my dna uh, you know I was, I was bored to speak on this essentially so which i believe is a gift i totally agree so when you're in these cycles because i find that as well right i mean a lot of time in this um you know platform it's imposter syndrome right a lot of people go through entrepreneurs and stuff like that <clears> but <throat> so i have my moments where i the depression creeps in because i was suicidal in my addiction all the time mm -hmm. and now i find that i've created myself some tools to get out of that how do you get out of these cycles do you just feel it and go through it and then you just eventually come out the other side or do you do things for it well, uh, it's more of a maintenance. We, uh, two co-authors and I have written a, a series of books on men's mental health. The first two are on Amazon. And it looks like an automobile owner's manual because it's men's mental health. And the first volume, there's a lot in there about uh, the car metaphors. You know, with an automobile, you get a car, you need routine maintenance, change the oil, top off the fluids, rotate the tires. And with mental illness, it's the same thing. I've been, I've been actually doing podcast after podcast teaching neurotypical people how to survive the pandemic using techniques that mentally ill people use every day to get out of bed in the morning, put the feet on the floor, uh, a self-care plan. So my, my strategy for surviving this three-day period is I used, to, I used to say I battle depression, but battle implies I can win and I can't. So I take an Aikido approach and Aikido is a martial art where rather than resist the energy of your partner or your opponent, you blend with the energy, you move in the direction they're moving eventually. And I try to blend with the energy of the depression because it has quite the energy. So I don't oppose it. I don't spend a lot of time and energy opposing it, trying to fight it. I just let it, you know, move me like, like the tide. And that, that's how I handle it on a uh, case by case, three day by three day basis. But it, it, it's important, I believe on the days when you're still, you're feeling great that you continue and mine is diet. I'm on the keto diet and I do intermittent fasting. I eat about once every 20, 22 hours. 
I have exercised. I got an old Nordic track here behind the green screen. You wouldn't recognize Nordic track. There's no clothes hanging on it. Um, the, I know everyone I've ever seen. Had clothes <laughs> on it. Uh, and so diet, exercise, good night's sleep. Med meditation, I meditate twice a day. It's a guided 30 minute meditation. And medication, I take a small amount of, um, of a psychotropic, which my doctor prescribed, it just happened to work for me, you know, first time. And apparently I was a, talking to a podcast, two podcasters yesterday who are, they're very much into the pharmacological aspects of mental illness. And I knew this, but they, re they reiterated that with psychotropics, usually one third of the people love them and they work great. One third of the people, eh, it's okay, not bad. One third of people completely worthless and you know side effects. So that means two thirds of the people who are taking antidepressant, it's not really working like it should be. So my advice at that point is get a DNA cheek swab test for a couple hundred bucks and, and they'll take your DNA and try to find an antidepressant or two that would work best with your metabolism. So we have, you know, we sort of dial it in. It's not perfect, but it's getting better. So, so those are my five. Then I have something called gamification. Uh, to get out of bed in the morning, some mornings, I'll make a list of six things, to-do list. And the game is, once I scratch off number six, I don't care if it's three o'clock in the afternoon, broad daylight, I can crawl back in bed, pull the covers over my head and watch the second season of the, was it the Mandalorian? Uh, or Disney Plus or, or you know, the, the tail end of the Queen's Gambit or Star Trek Discovery, whatever. I win, I get to go back to bed. So that's called gamification. And then routine. I go to bed about the same time, get up same time, eat about the same time, work out about the same time. You know, so you have to kind of control, well, you know, it's like a substance abuse disorder and recovery. You have to control the things you can control and let the rest of it go. Because people with mental illness and people with substance abuse disorders, I mean, they we wake up in an uncertain world every day, whether there's a pandemic or not. So we have to have ways to cope and move forward. And so I've been teaching, because what worries me is you have all these people whose lives have been turned upside down with no routine, working from home with the fam, and they may be situationally depressed because of the pandemic and social distancing. But if they've never been depressed, seen or felt it, how would they know why they can't get out of bed in the morning? Why can't I get out of bed? So uh, that's what worries me is people that are depressed because of the situation. And again, I recommend a telemedicine appointment, talk to a clinician, find out if it's in fact depression. If it is, you know, try medication. If it doesn't work well, try the cheek swab. And it's not a life sentence. Pandemic will eventually ease up and you can just taper off the meds and may probably never take them again as long as you live. But yeah, it really worries me the people who have never been depressed and prob probably maybe don't recognize that's what's going on. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I, I mean, for me, our, our routines, our daily routines sound almost identical <laughs> because if I don't do that regularly, I mean, I can't just do it in times I'm down because then as soon as I'm good, I'm thinking I'm all good. I got this right. And I know for me, I have, I've never just got it. I'm never cured. Nope. I'm never going to, you know, I, I will have good days and I'm going to have not so good days, but even my not so good days are way better today than when I was living that old life so oh, yeah. you know yeah and i mean i i i know i i comedian for years i fought the fact that i'm a morning person finally gave in to my circadian rhythms because it's healthier if you just listen to your body about sleep six and a half hours from about 7 30 in the evening 
till 2.30 in the morning, 3, maybe. That's perfect for me. Just happens the way my, my brain works. And I have chores and things. We have lots of animals, cats and dogs. And, you know, you got to clean cat boxes and feed dogs. And I try to get all that done. Everything of the chore variety done because I've discovered if I wait until like 5, 5.30 in the afternoon, I mean, it's all I can do to get those things done. I'm, I'm really dragging from three o'clock on. So I try to get all that stuff done as early in the day as possible, knowing if I don't, it'll drag me down, you know, to, uh, it's really difficult to get those things done. So again, scheduling, again, you know, it's a matter of, you have to, I think you have to know your biorhythms, your, most of my zoom calls are from three to six in the afternoon. Cause I'm not really, I'm, I'm pretty much toast by then mentally, but I can talk, I can, you know, chat on the zoom and, you know, and that's, that's not difficult, but yeah, again, and I schedule, I schedule it on purpose. I tell my speakers who want to do a podcast, look, you need to pick the time. So people are not all over your calendar, you know, find a time that's comfortable for you. That's not going to interfere with anything else. So, you know, that's why I do the zoom from three to six generally. And, uh, some, some things I can do at a, other, you know, because of zoom, I'm talking to people in London. And we're there eight hours ahead. So I've got, we, we've got to, I've got to do it before three in the afternoon. Otherwise it's going to be middle of the night for them. Yeah. So I'll make an exception. But um, yeah, again, it's all about, for us, it's all about routine. And because the world is such a crazy place. And I tell people, here's what you don't understand about mental illness. I suppose substance abuse disorder as well. It's like being the, the Greek character Sisyphus who gave fire to man and got punished by being forced to roll the rock up a hill every day. And the idea was if he could get it over top of the hill, down the other side, he could retire. But of course, every time he got near the top, it rolled back down to the bottom. I said, having a mental illness or a substance abuse disorder, you wake up every morning, there's a rock and there's a hill. Some days the rock is small and the hill's not so steep. Some days the rock is huge and the hill is Kilimanjaro, but every day without fail, there's a rock and a hill. And my job as a speaker, is to make sure if you hear my voice that when you wake up the next morning, you can still move that rock. That's my job. And that's an amazing job. Now, oh, thanks. because <laughs> it is hard some days to move that rock. I feel oh. it. It's like I just and it's why I get up at 4 a.m. and people think I'm crazy for it. But I'm like, I actually do everything that's super important to my mental health. Right. And what's important to me, what I love to do, because then I know whatever life throws at me the rest of the day, I know the good stuff is taken care of. I know yep. I've done what I need to do to continue on tomorrow. Yep. I've walked the dogs. I've made their snacks for the evening. You know, I've, I've cleaned all the, <laughs> we have 11 rescue cats. I've cleaned all the cat boxes. <laughs> yeah, I know it's, and it's quite a chore with, you know, that many cat boxes. Uh, and it's hard to keep up some, but you know, I do the basics every day. Everybody gets fresh sand because everybody loves fresh sand. Um, yeah, it's... So you, in one of your TEDx talks, you talk about entrepreneurs and how mental health is way more common than people think with entrepreneurs. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, that was the, that was the genesis of my Suicide the Secret of My Success keynote, really for entrepreneurs. Because I read two studies, that a third of entrepreneurs were depressed and suicidal. And the clinicians determined that it was long hours, little sleep, unmet expectations. I believe that's the case for a lot of people. However, I believe there's a subset, significant number, myself included, who are not depressed and suicidal because they're entrepreneurs. They are in fact entrepreneurs because they were depressed and suicidal 
again, living a life that they didn't think they belonged in. They had a dream, which is where they thought they belonged. And they realized, as I did, you know, if I stay and I keep doing this, I'm going to kill myself. Well, what the hell? I believe two famous examples. Kate Spade, she was, she had lived with mental illness. She was untreated, except for drugs and alcohol. And she was the head, she was the head of the accessories department at Vanity Fair magazine, I believe, which is a, an amazing job. But my guess is that she said to herself, wait a minute, I'm not supposed to be reviewing other people's fashions. I need my own, I should be doing my own line of fashions. And if I don't, you know, do that, I'm going to kill myself. And then of course, the second thought is, wait a minute, I could quit Vanity Fair, try that. If it works great, if it doesn't. And of course it worked well. Anthony Bourdain, he was at Vassar in college. I don't know what his major was, but it wasn't culinary. He'd gone to France with his folks when he was eight years old, fell in love with food. And so all through his teenage years, he worked in a couple of restaurants. He goes to college, even though he's not majoring in culinary arts, he's working at two restaurants because that's what he really loves. I'm guessing he came to the conclusion, wait, what am I doing at Vassar studying political science or whatever it was? Great school, good major, but not really me. I need to be studying culinary arts. And if I don't do that, you know, make a change, I'm going to kill my, well, off he went and was very successful now. Unfortunately, as you know, both ended, um, died by suicide. Uh, I'm guessing just woke up one morning and, you know, couldn't move the rock as oftentimes is the case. And a lot of neurotypical people don't understand that most suicides, not all, but most are not about killing yourself, but just simply ending the pain. Somebody came up to me on a ship because I worked the cruises for about 10 years as a comedian. I had mentioned off stage that I did suicide prevention speaking. And he said, Frank, you know what the connection is? Because every day on the ship, they have a friend of Bill, friends of Bill meeting. He said, you know the connection between addiction and suicide? And I said, well, I know, you know, sometimes co-occurring co uh, morbidities. And he goes, no, I mean, drill down deeper than that. The, the, the thing they have in common is both cases, the person is trying to kill the pain, whether it's in their life and kill the pain or just kill the pain for a time, you know, and cycle over and over and over again, which eventually can lead, of course, to death. Um, so, yeah, I think that's the connection is that, you know, wanting to get out of that pain. And here's what worries me about people who are new to depression. I know my cycle is about three days. So I know if I just hang on till Monday morning, you know, the sun will come back up. So it'll come up tomorrow. Um, but it, what if you have never been depressed? And people with depression like that tend to live in the immediate moment. And all they can see is the pain. And they can't see that it's ever going to be any better than it is right this minute. So if that's the case, why am I bothering? And that's a dangerous state of mind, I think. And unless you're familiar with your cycle and you know that it's going to end here shortly. Um, so again, that's one of the things I cover when I do my keynotes is, you know, you teach them how to teach, teach people how to recognize the signs of depression in themselves, mm -hmm. having trouble get, getting up, take a shower, run a load of wash. You know what? That may be, you may be depressed. Because mm -hmm. I've heard that from a number of people that are otherwise normal that, you know, this, uh, I think I talked to one, one of my clients hadn't, hadn't had a shower in three days, just couldn't drag herself to the shower. I said, you know what? Sounds like you might be a wee bit depressed. So, <laughs> and it's you know it's such a uh, 
I, I talk to a lot of people that, you know, they don't understand addiction or they haven't had family that's been affected. They're like, why can't you just stop? <laughs> and I, I'm like, well, you know, if it were that easy, everybody would be doing it because do you think people want to be homeless? Do you think people want to like, I remember my bottom moment when I decided to stop digging I had a bottle of pills in my hand and I was like, I just don't want to hurt people anymore. I can't, I don't want to feel this way. I don't want to make others feel this way. And so it just seemed like the easiest way out to end it all. And you're right, like the commonality between addiction and suicide, right? You want to end that pain. And a lot of people look at it, you know, and I've heard this too, and it just irks me when they're like, well, that's really selfish. And it's like, Sometimes there's just no other way out. Like we, we just can't see another way out. Well, and, and my argument with the selfish is it, it is in fact in the mind of the person who is addicted or suicidal or both is it's called a burdensomeness. You firmly believe the world would be better off without you. I can quit hurting these people. So from the inside looking out, it's a selfless act. I mean, I knew that my wife would be brokenhearted, but but had a million dollar life insurance policy. So she'd be restored financially. So I was literally worth more dead than alive. And I was thinking about her. I was thinking, you know, I'll be gone. She'll miss me, but she'll be restored financially, not have to worry for the rest of her life. She invests wisely about, you know, about where's the next meal coming from. And so, yeah, so it's, it is actually although irrational, it's a selfless act from the inside looking out. And then the other one I love is that you're a coward. Oh, really? Let me do this. Um, open your mouth. Okay. And I'm going to pull a hammer back on this nickel plate of 38 and shove the barrel in your mouth. <laughs> Let's see how long it takes you to pee your pants. Um, Cause you know, it takes some gumption to end your life. You know, I mean, and I'm not saying you should be stepping in front of a train, but you had a guy call me cause I give out my phone number at every keynote. Mm -hmm. and on every podcast and he called me and he was terribly depressed and he said he was checking amtrak schedules and so meaning he was going to step out in front of the train i said look i'm not going to ask you to promise not to kill yourself what i would ask you is chances are if you step out on the tracks you and the engineer are going to lock eyes before the train hits you and he or she is going to live that live with that moment for the rest of their life so you know if you're going to take your life, I mean, to ruin someone else's in the process, I just would hope you would not, you know, I don't, I don't want you to die, but I'll, I don't want you to take the other poor person down with you because, you know, it's like jumping off a bridge into traffic and landing on some poor soul's car. I mean, you know, I, yeah, I just can't imagine leaving somebody with those kind of memories. I, I know people, I actually knew someone in high school that he was driving along at night and somebody jumped right in front of him and that forever scarred him. He actually dove deeper into addiction as a result of that. Really? Yeah. Well, then that's my point. I mean, you know, okay, we joked about this offline, but I've said, if you're gonna take, if you're gonna, you know, involve somebody else in your death by suicide, find some, pardon expression, a-hole strap on the dynamite vest and wrap your arms around them and then pull the car. I mean, take somebody who deserves it with you. You know, I mean, I'm not up for murder. I'm, I'm it's all tongue in cheek, but you know, I mean, why take some good soul with you? I mean, you know, some poor guy driving along or some poor engineer, you know, it's just, uh, well, 
I love how you can talk about, is that one of the cats there? Sorry, I know nobody else can see that, but I just saw a cat tail, which is awesome. So we have to say, ah, we have to say one of the 11. One of the 11 domino. (laughs) Yeah. And you know, um, we had wildfires here um, in September. First time, first time they were really bad, like California bad in Oregon. I think what happened was um, 50 mile an hour winds, uh, electric, you know, tower goes over, hits the ground sparks fly in California, because they've had such, you know, so many years of experience with this PG and E shuts the grid down and cuts 250,000 people off like that. Oregon, it was, we'd never seen anything like it. So the power company didn't know the next step should have been pull the lever and shut it down. And 177,000 acres later, uh, a game within a mile and a quarter of the house. I'm downtown. I don't know if you're familiar, but there are three levels. Level three is get ready. Level two is get set. Level one is get the hell out. Don't look back. So I went downtown was level three, uh, three, one, level one. Thinking, you know, I'm going to see my cardiologist, get it done half an hour, come back. I'll be fine. Maybe might get to level two by the time I'm back. We're already packed. So I get to the cardiologist and then my phone goes off. Level three. What the hell happened to level two? So I'm 25 minutes from home. The fire is a mile and a quarter from the house. There are 11 cats inside, you know, and there is no way I'm, I'm allowing without trying 11 cats to die in a fire. We're like the Marine Corps. We never leave anybody behind. <laughs> so I'm driving east. The entire neighborhood is driving west out of the fire. I'm the last guy in the neighborhood and I'm in the house loading cats into carriers as it gets darker and darker outside with the smoke. Yeah, I have a whole new respect for the term herding cats. I'd put one in the carrier or two would jump out. Finally got all 11 in the carriers, in the car. And then, I mean, the fire is, I made a little video because I didn't know I was going to get out alive. So on my iPhone, I put it up on the dash, turned it around and said, look, if I don't make it out, here's what's happening. I came in to get the cats. I'm hoping to get out of the fire. You know, I'm I'm starting to cry. Um, And I said goodbye to my wife and my sister and, you know, so forth and so on. And fortunately, I made it out. But a friend of mine said, you could have died. I go, look, I've been trying to kill myself for four decades. Hadn't had any luck. Uh, And B, if you're going to die, why not go out in a blaze, pardon the pun, of glory? Why why did he drive back into the fire? To save the kikis. Oh, my God. To save the cats? So, you know. You're a local hero. With the with the local um, uh, shelter, yeah, they're like, I, I, you know, I post videos all the time, and it it, it didn't go viral by any stretch, but twenty five hundred people saw it. I got I got messages, Facebook messages. Man, I watched it twice. I cried. Uh, <clears throat> so anyway, the cat survived, the house survived, the dog survived, my wife survived. But yeah, it was it was. Uh, but again, because I was because because I've already crossed that barrier, because I'm willing to die by suicide, you know. It keeps me alive because if suicide is all about pain and I know I've got a way out, then I can stand a great deal of pain knowing that I could end it any time I like. So ironically, my chronic suicidal ideation keeps me alive because I know, you know, it's a matter of control. And, you know, so it's I mean, I have no serious thoughts about killing myself and I can't now because I, after all these people came up after my presentation to say, you know, I didn't know it had a name and, you know, I just thought I was some kind of freak and they've hopefully been steered off the path. Of 
I was some, I was in Billings, Montana. It's dusk, it's starting to snow. I can hear a river in the distance. There's a kid coming to get me in a truck, take me back to the hotel. And you know, it's snowing, it's dusk, and there's a river, and it hit me. I thought, oh my God, I am George Bailey, and it's a wonderful life. I've been showing what these people's lives would be like if I weren't there to speak and tell them they're not alone. And so if I kill myself, I'll take all of them with me. And by the way, I got that idea planted in the back of my head from a friend whose father was in AA for, for 20 years, the last 20 years of his life. And raging alcoholic lose 40, passed away at 60 in, in AA in the program all that time. And somebody said to him, are you ever going to drink again? He goes, no. no. How can you say that? Well, he said, all the people I've sponsored and all the people I'm going to sponsor, if I dive back into that bottle, they'll dive back in with me. And I just can't, I can't do that to them. So I won't ever. And he didn't, he didn't touch another drop and you know, and he sponsored rafts of people. So uh, that, that kind of, that was bubbling in the back of my head. I'm sure when I was thinking about all the people that came up, you know, and, uh, and said, I, you know, I've had people come up and go, I'm the one, you're the one, what? You said pretty much every, every, every speech you gave at least one person has chronic. Oh, you, oh, oh, really? <laughs> well, welcome to the club. Uh, oh, and that's awesome. And I feel the same way too, right? Cause I'm, I'm creating a life so good that I never want to go back and I never, you know, I'm, I'm walking with people on this journey and allowing them to be more open and share what they're going through. And it's like, well, I can't go back because if I do, what happens? Like my mission is over and what happens to them? So yeah, exactly. And that's, that's like my friend's father, who's an AA, he just couldn't, he could not see because he knew if he did, because people would look at that and go, well, you know, if he can't make it, what chance have I got? Yeah. Yeah, so you have to, you know, you have to lead by example. Uh, my dad died very young. We had a housekeeper, kind of like the movie The Help, only we treated her well. Um, she would say, because she was also a minister, she would say, I'd rather see a sermon than hear one. So that instilled in me, you have to lead by example rather than tell people, you know, what you think they ought to be doing. What, as we say in the mental health business, don't should all over them. You should do this and you should do that. Yes. Yeah. 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 Park your, <laughs> park your judgment at the door. I always tell people two, two phrases you have to get out of your vocabulary. You should. And I know. Because <laughs> if you know, why aren't you doing it? <laughs> yes. Well, and I have a uh, cousin, Georgia. She was a raging alcoholic until she was 39. You know, by the time you get to your late 30s, it's, it's a lifestyle. It's not just a, you know. But both her parents passed away in a relatively short period of time. She'd been living with the folks, you know, that was her support system. So at that point, you either you either go down farther in the bottle or you change your life. She got the program, got sober. Um, she went to Carolina, UNC, Chapel Hill, got her undergraduate degree in social work, got her master's in social work. And now she works in, um, you know, substance abuse disorder work. And that she, one, of the, one of the nice things about her experience is um, there's no way if you have a problem, you know, that you can BS her because she's been there, overdone that. You know, we were joking the other day about something. I was talking about a medication of some kind. Oh, I know psilocybin because there's now some research that 
microdosing psilocybin, which is magic mushrooms, is actually very effective on PTSD, depression, and addiction. And, and not just a fix, but maybe in rewiring so that it might actually be, I'm sorry, not a patch, but a fix. And I said to her, Georgia, have you ever done the magic? I stopped. <laughs> she goes, finish the sentence. You ever done magic mushrooms? Okay, let me count the ways. Uh, pretty much nothing she hasn't done in that vein, pardon the pun, that, uh, you know, that said you can't, there's no way you can BS her. I mean, it's, and I think that's, I, I did a show at uh, Lynchburg College. Young woman came up afterwards, you know, suicide prevention, because three college students a day, every day die by suicide. She came up after, she goes, can I give you a hug? And I'm like, oh dear God. It's right in the middle of Me Too movement. Everybody in the room's got a video camera. I just, I just pictured myself on the front page of the local paper, you know, speaker gropes, go in. So I gave her a very brotherly, push my pelvis back as far, pelvis back as far as I could hug. And then I said to her, are you a hugger? She goes, no. <laughs> What's the hug? She goes, well, 15 minutes into your little keynote, I'm thinking to myself, oh, dear God, this guy is inside my head. She goes, I've been in therapy for two years. The woman is, is well-educated and knows her stuff. She's a great clinician, but has no context for what I'm living with. She goes, 45 minutes with you was worth more than two years with her. They're just... This, you know, it's that peer, peer to peer thing that's so powerful. Said, well, thank you. That's awfully nice of you to say. But you know, if you don't have the, you know, the context, it's hard to wrap your mind around why somebody could be that depressed or why somebody could be so close to ending their life. I mean, how could you? My favorite is, well, choose joy. Okay. Unless you're talking about dishwashing liquid. You know, I mean, if I could choose joy, wouldn't you think I would have done it like four decades ago? If it was that easy? Yeah, I, I, I've i had the same thing, right? Like I said earlier, it's like, well, <clears throat> why don't you just quit? I'm like, well, if it was that easy, I would have been doing it. Like, I didn't want to go bankrupt. I didn't want to lose everything. I didn't want to nuke yeah. my life. It just happened to work out that way. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah it it's, is. It's, it's in my, my wife had a very traumatic childhood, uh, abusive father, passive mother, juvenile hall, foster care, and two eating disorders. And people would say to me, you've just got to make her eat. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's, which is a normal thing to say. But I, I realized I learned very quickly about the eating disorder. It's not a, yeah, it's, there's no way to make her eat. She has to, you know, do the work. And she did. And she's now on a raw food vegan diet. And she lost 115 pounds, kept it, has kept it off 20 years because she's very careful. She only eats what she's allowed to eat, you know, and she sprouts her own beans and uses flax oil and it's all very healthy. And she can, you know, doesn't, doesn't make her feel guilty about eating. So, cause she says it, 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 that, that guilt lives right there. I mean, it's always close by that if she had a peanut butter sandwich or something, she would just begin to spiral because it would just kick back in like that. So, but again, if you're, if you've never dealt with anything like that, it's hard to understand why you just don't eat. <laughs> if it only was that simple. I have the same thing. Like I can't eat one cookie. I eat 12 oh. cookies. Like don't make a tray because I'm going to eat the whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, if you don't cut up the brownies, it's one serving I'm told. Um, oh, that's a good one. Thank yeah, you for when, that tip. 
Yeah, well, there's one. My lovely wife did some therapy for eating disorders, and there were other people there, and they said, you know, that's what I would do is I'd make a pan of brownies, and I wouldn't cut them up, and I would consider that one serving because it wasn't, you know, sliced up into. <laughs> yeah. Unbelievable. So I have to ask, you were a writer for the Tonight Show for yep. 20 years. What was that like? It, it was a lot of fun. The I was a what they called at the time a facts writer. Leno was the guest host, permanent guest host. And Johnny would say, look, I'm taking next week off, which meant Leno had to come up with four nights, 18 jokes a night. So we started hiring road comics to fax in topical jokes. And the dream for us was you do enough in production and I try to get 12 to 24 jokes in a day, straight out of the newspaper. Then when he needed to hire somebody for in-house, you know, he would come calling. And, and there were a couple of people who actually got hired, you know, that were, formerly fax writers. I never quite made it that far, but when he got the job for real, they cut most of the fax writers, the contract labor loose, but I got to stay on and continue submitting jokes. And I was averaging one or two a week in the monologue and it paid 75 bucks. Wasn't the money, it was good practice to keep the muscle in shape, the funny muscle, and also to know Leno. I mean, he did me a couple of favors, you know, through the years when I got a radio show, he did a little promo videotape and, you know, like that. So, and, and, and when he retired from the tonight show, he said, look, I can't make a video for you. Like saying you're a great corporate speaker. They just don't like me to do things like that on video. But he said, you know, if you get a chance to co-host a morning show and it's down to you and one other person, call Helga, my assistant, give her the, give me, give her the name and phone number of the program director. And I'll call the guy up or gal up, see if I can't strong arm him into hiring you. So I've been sitting on that favor since then. One of these days I'm going to pull the trigger and use that. So we'll see if, uh, well, I'm hoping maybe book number four of the four book series on men's mental health. I'd love to have a blurb from Leno on the cover. So I'm going to send him a couple of books to show him what we've done and ask if Jay would be kind enough to, you know, say something nice, you know, for the, as a blurb for the cover. That would be very, very cool. Now, you also, and I think you touched on it a little bit at the beginning, but you hold the record for the longest non-stop comedy road trip, <laughs> yeah. right? What, what the heck was that about? Yeah, well, I, my wife's blonde. I just told her it was a day trip and we were gone for 2,629 days. Um, we left San Diego where we were living and I had 10 weeks booked on the road in comedy clubs. And it was it just by chance, it was late 85, right after Christmas 85, the comedy was beginning to boom. There were clubs popping up like mushrooms everywhere. And so it got to the point where it made no sense to go somewhere and get an apartment because we were working every, I was working every week. And so we just traveled around the country, she and I, going from comedy club to comedy club. And back then, they put the comics up oftentimes, not in a hotel, but in a three bedroom condo. They called it the comedy condo. They'd have somebody come in, turn it, clean it every week. So we didn't just work with Foxworthy for a week. We lived with Foxworthy and Paula Poundstone and Ellen and Rosie and, you know, and Dennis Miller and Adam Sandler and, and Kevin James. So for my lovely wife, since mostly guys, it was like living in a frat house, but you know, they got used to her being around and in the beginning, it was like you brought your wife, <laughs> but we were like the June award cleaver of comedy, both vegetarians, both worked out every day, you know, came home from the show, went to bed. And there were comics by the end of the tour 
who would tell their manager, look, I need two, three weeks with Frank and Wendy. I need to dry out, eat some good food, <laughs> exercise, get some sleep. So see if we can't get the, get us booked together for two or three weeks so we can, you know, a little stable home life for the, uh, the comics. That is a long trip, but it sounds, you must've had a blast. Oh yeah. We were 25 to 35 years old. So and just to pitch everything and go and travel, I could, I would stop in a town, Raleigh, where I'm from. And we'd see some folks that you went to high school with, college with, whatever. And we'd be pulling away. And you could see the, like the guy standing in the driveway, looking at us, pulling away off to some, you know, like some other place for another week. And thinking, man, I'd love to pitch it and just go. <laughs> so, yeah. It's, but, you know, um, looking back at 64 years old, I cannot imagine had I survived, how depressed I would be if I hadn't have taken that chance way back in my mid twenties, believing that I'd found my purpose. I firmly believed. Well, like I said, when I got on stage inside my head with unbidden, I just heard your home. And I've only heard that three different times. And each time it was something I believed I should be doing and was going to be good at. I took a voiceover class in LA and then I took a, a series of them in the first class, they got a guy in the booth reading a spot for McDonald's. You know, it's, it's copy they've gotten from McDonald's. And you go in, you read it, and then the teacher critiques it. Well, he reads the copy, and I'm listening. And I thought to myself, man, it's McDonald's. For God's sakes, put a smile in your voice. And no sooner had I had that thought than the teacher goes, man, it's McDonald's. For God's sakes, put a smile in your voice. And I heard it again. Oh, man, you are home because you heard that or heard where it was missing. My teacher would tell you, <clears throat> good pipes will get you a job in voiceover. A critical ear, if you can hear a smile or not, will get you a career. And it's, you know, because you can actually hear a smile on the radio if you happen to be smiling when you're doing the spot. Mm -hmm. now, I, that's the thing I love about radio is that um, it's very intimate and I always stand up when I do it and I mo move because you can't hear it, but I think you can hear it in my voice, whether I'm smiling or frowning, you know, whether I'm moving or excited. <clears throat> so anyway, that was a, you know, one of the other places where I thought, oh man, I am. Unfortunately, the voiceover community is very small, very difficult to make a living, especially when the stars used to be, you know, people like uh, Eddie Murphy and you know, Chris Rock, they didn't make animated movies, do voiceovers. It was just ordinary people. And then of course, they started using stars for that for commercials. So it got even more competitive. So the for your listeners or viewers, at my website, thementalhealthcomedian.com, there's an MP3 that's free. You can download it. It's the first book of our men's mental health series. And I narrate it. It's on a bridge, four hours, 14 minutes. And I'm, I'm going to narrate them all for Audible. That was part of my deal with my co-authors. Look, I'll make it funny. But I want to be. I want to voice the audible, <clears throat> and it's you know it's it was it's a lot of work, but it's also fun to you know use all that <laughs> all that training. Otherwise, I won't be using it. So, absolutely. Now you have been on five different TEDx talks, and I just love how you're doing all these things that you love. And now you also teach others how to become a TEDx speaker. If somebody, because I love to encourage people to do what they're passionate about, obviously, mm. but if somebody's ever thought about getting up on stage, you know, what do you recommend they do? How do they start? 
Okay. If you uh, have a TED Talk in you, pay close attention to the next couple of minutes. The, they do not make it easy to find the links to apply to the TEDx. So it takes a little bit of finesse. And this is one of the things, first things I teach my students. A good way, an easy way to find the links is to go to the Google machine and type in TEDx applications 2021. And on the first page, you'll probably find two or three. And what you're looking for is dot coms. Um, TEDxNashville.com. TEDxEmory.com. You do not want the official TED sites because if you go there for, let's say, TEDx Atlanta, the official, there is no link to apply. But they don't tell you, okay, how do you go from there? So what you do is you go to the Google machine, type in TEDx Atlanta, hopefully a .com will come up. Oftentimes at that .com, it'll say apply to speak or nominate a speaker. You can always nominate yourself, so don't let that throw you. Um, so go down, and I would, if you're going to put that in the, you know, TEDx application 2021, I would go four or five, six pages deep on Google. Nobody ever does that, you know, ordinarily. There's an old joke about if you wanted to hide from the world, where would you go? Page two, Google, nobody goes there. But in this case, you want to go three, four, five, six pages deep because you're probably going to find a little nugget, a dot com. Or TEDx Atlanta Facebook page, because either way you can DM them and say, hey, when does the window open for, you know, to apply for a TEDx and then sign up for the email list. That way next year, when they open up the uh, application process, they'll send you an email. Hey, we're accepting the applications. So TEDx applications 2021. Now, I mentioned that they get hundreds of applications. So whatever you put in those first boxes, on that app it needs to be interesting, intriguing. I like to, with my students, make a title that's a little nebulous, don't really quite understand what that means, forcing them to read the subtitle. And then if they like the subtitle, then they'll read an overview, you know, two, three sentences or 250 word overview. And then the last question that almost always appears, why you? Why are you the person to be doing this? So those are the three big questions. And you need to keep everything short. I have my students, by the way, create a title, subtitle, a 10 to 15 word elevator pitch, which almost gives every one of them a hernia because they know so much about what they're passionate about that 10 words, 15 words. <laughs> I spend a great deal of time editing. And then I say two, three sentences tops overview. And here's why. Because if you can do that, and the committee sees that, they figure if you can sum it up in 15 words, you can probably cover it in 12 to 18 minutes. If you can't, and that's the number one thing that gets you thrown in the no pile, is too much. Too many ideas, too many words in your idea. They figure if you, you know, if you can't boil it down, you can't do it in 12 to 18 minutes. Now, let's say you're lucky. Send in the app and you get an audition. They ask for an overview, and then they're probably going to ask you this. So be prepared. What are you going to teach our audience? So make sure you have a list of three to six bullet points, learning objectives, action items, takeaways, how are you going to improve the life or lives of the audience and then the wider world on YouTube? They're all about, you know, able to's. What will the audience be able to do after they hear you speak they couldn't do before? So make sure you have a list of able to's, how to's, action items, you know, things the audience is going to learn. And follow the application to the letter. 
they've gotten to the point where if you, if they say, give us a 60 second video overview, if you send them 61 seconds, no pile immediately, because they figure you can't follow directions. And if you can't follow directions on a simple application, you're going to be difficult to deal with when we're, they're coaching you to speak. So make sure you follow their instructions to the letter. Bottom line, don't give them any reason to throw you in the no pile because they're, they got a lot of apps to go through. They're not looking for the first reason to give you an audition. They're looking for the first reason to throw you in the no pile and go on to the next 99 applications. So that would be my advice. So TEDx applications, 2021, you'll find them. There's probably three or four right now on the first page Google after you search that. And you know, do, don't just submit in your area, submit all over the US. I've got two students who actually got the callback for TEDx University of Essex in London. So wow. assuming, you know, if one of them or both of them get it, hopefully they'll be able to fly over there and do it. But, you know, they're also happening virtually. So it's, it may not have to leave the country to go and do the, the TEDx. So that that's, oh, and a book called Talk Like Ted. Talk Like Ted by Carmine Gallo, like the wine, G-A-L-L-O. Great book. It's uh, the nine things that are in every great TED Talk. And I, I, I use that to cobble together my TED Talk. Number one, by the way, it's probably not going to surprise you, is passion. You have to be passionate about whatever it is you're talking about. You cannot be inspiring unless you're inspired. So, you know, a young woman called me and said, I want to do a TED Talk. I said, what's the topic? She goes, customer service. Oh, dear God. <laughs> Are you that passionate about customer service? See, now, if she'd said the power of empathy in customer service, now we got something we can work with. But just customer service? No, I don't <laughs> think that's going to. And here's the importance of a title subtitle. My fourth TEDx talk, Suicide, the Secret of My Success, which is obviously counterintuitive. Dead Man Talking, play on the Dead Man Walking movie and book. They called me up and they said, you know, this is the TEDx. And I said, oh, am I going to audition? They said, no, you're not auditioning. You're going to be on. You're booked. Based on the idea of the title and the subtitle. My last one, the fifth one I did, it was called Mental Health and the Orgasm, Treat Your Depression Single-Handedly. <laughs> Again, no audition, just got booked. And that's when I began coaching. I thought, okay, this is the linchpin. It's the it's the creative element, the getting getting... Um, set yourself apart from the other 199 applications, you know, where they just can't help but read on. What did you see the title of this thing? In the middle of talk, my wife hated this joke. I said, I'm putting it in. I think it's going to kill. In the middle of talk on, you know, basically, it basically orgasms and the palliative value, you know, both physically and mentally. Whatever. I said to the audience, apropos of nothing, I just stopped and went, do you guys know why they call an orgasm an orgasm? They're looking at me and I go, because nobody could spell. <laughs> it killed. And I said to the audience, oh, thank God you like that. My wife hated that joke. <laughs> but yeah, so that so if you're going to fill out an application, for goodness sakes, be as creative as absolutely. Make, make them where they cannot help but read on. You know, sometimes a fact or a figure or something, you know, something that happened to you that's really out of the ordinary. You know, I got stuck between two rocks and shooting my arm off at the elbow. Okay, I'm reading on to find out. You know what I mean? 
Absolutely. It's it's like Facebook ads, you know, where we learn to promote episodes and stuff like that. It's like you got to get them to stop scrolling. What is going to make them stop? Yeah. I worked with Ron White. We were standing, you know, from the Blue Collar Comedy Tour. He's actually funnier off stage, if you can believe it. And he is drinking scotch on stage, by the way. Real scotch, not Diet Coke. And we're at the comedy condo after the show. Everybody's, you know, we're getting ready to watch Letterman or something. And I, there's a lag or a commercial break. And Ron goes, oh, I got to tell you a story about Amarillo. Okay. All right. I'm in Amarillo, Texas. I'm working Jody's Comedy Club. Now, it's after the show. I'm with a hooker and a midget. Okay. I don't care if my bladder explodes. I'm not going anywhere until I find out how this thing comes out. Anything that starts with a hooker and a midget, I want to hear the whole story. Mm-hmm. So that's the kind of hook you need for, you know, for, uh, for your TEDx talk. And so that's, I work, I work with my clients to be as creative as absolutely possible so that they will hopefully, you know, hopefully read on, read on. That is some phenomenal advice. So if people want to learn more, get a hold of you, um, how can they reach you? Um, you can go to either The Mental Health Comedian or TheMentalHealthComedian.com. But if you just type in The Mental Health Comedian, all my stuff comes up. And you know, branding, I've been doing that. You know, All my social media has The Mental Health Comedian on it. Or YourTEDxCoach.com, YourTEDxCoach. And at YourTEDxCoach, the freebie is, it's a PDF download. It's the six things you can do to kill your chances of landing a TEDx talk. We talked about not giving them any reason to throw you immediately into the no pile. And those six things are the things that will get you tossed immediately. So if you can avoid those, then you got a better chance of making it to the audition process. So awesome. Thank you so much, Frank, for being on the show. It was a pleasure having you here. I could probably go on for another hour. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's my, my pleasure. Um, it's, you know, I mean, I, I, substance abuse disorder near and dear to my heart um, because most, most of my relatives of the previous generation, if they were living with a mental illness, they were self-medicating. And I wrote a joke that said, my relatives cannot pass the first question, the roadside sobriety test which is, would you please get out of the car? Oh, <laughs> I mean, that's how it was just rampant in the, in, in the family. And fortunately, my generation, my sister, and then the nieces and nephews, everybody's out about their mental health. So there's no stigma in the family. There's no, you know, if they have an issue, they have no trouble coming forward and said, look, I'm, I've just got anxiety. I just, I don't know exactly if it's clinical anxiety or I'm just worried about, you know, whatever. So that that's the and I I've said that must be the case sometimes with families where alcoholism or you know substance abuse runs. If one generation is very closeted about it, oftentimes the next generation, having suffered through that, is out. You know, four square. This is our issue. So that there's not that recrimination. It's not taboo to talk about it. You know, it, I, I imagine the numbers of people who don't continue to spiral after two decades. I'm sure there's a, you know, a good thing where people just keep, you know, they don't make that change. So congratulations. Thank you. And thank you so much for being here. Mm -hmm. Well, I hope you guys enjoyed that episode. And I love how Frank shares, um, you know, he's got that humor to it as well. And, you know, I think sometimes even though suicide is such a 
serious topic and any of you that might be struggling with those kind of thoughts make sure you reach out and get help you know it um, you're not the only one that's suffering so if uh, you are struggling with it Frank has given me his number so you can always reach out to me tomorrow at theroadforward.ca and if it is something that you are having troubles with please reach out, ask for help. I will pass on Frank's number so you can chat with someone who is experienced and who deals with this kind of stuff. So um, he's always happy to help, but I really hope you enjoyed that episode. And guys, you know, to spread even more hope, you know, I'm giving away free copies right now of my first book called Hope Elevated. So if you head on over to my website at www.theroadforward.ca slash beyond recovery, you can pick up a copy. You'll have a PDF emailed to you, or of course you can head on over to Amazon and you can find it there. Uh, But anyway, I'm giving it away for free right now. So take full advantage of that. And guys, until the next episode, stay safe. Thanks for listening to another episode of The Road Beyond Recovery. Did you know that our dreams can become a reality? When you determine your purpose in life and you allow that purpose to guide you, anything is possible. It just takes action. Don't wait until you're ready. Start to create the life you were truly meant to live right now. I am super passionate about my mission to help people live up to their true potential. So if you want to learn more, check out my website at www.theroadforward.ca. And until next week, keep exploring what lies beyond recovery for you.